Good morning, Danielle. How are you? It's great to see you. Hi, Peter. It's good to be here, but it, we're recording this on a Monday morning mm -hmm. for me yes. and you. We're on the West Coast time, and it feels very much like a Monday morning, so I'm a little frazzled, but I'm here. Mm -hmm. So I barely got one of my kids off to school. The other one does not go to school right now, so that's just kind of where I'm at. Mm -hmm. How about yeah. you? Yeah, it's a Monday that feels very much like a Monday. Um, I say this to one of my kids every Monday morning because I drop them off. It's like Mondays are hard. And I keep telling myself, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't reinforce that narrative in his mind. No, it's good because he might be feeling that. And he's like, am mm -hmm. I the only one that feels this way? So you telling him that helps him to be like, Mondays are hard and tomorrow's better. I don't know. That's how yeah. my son has responded yeah. to us talking about it. Thank you for that, because I feel like he's a different kid every Monday morning, and I, I experience that on a weekly basis. I think maybe just naming the reality of where we are, and hopefully we can have different kinds of Mondays, right? When you're on vacation, Monday feels different, maybe, so. It's true, and, and teaching, like my son is six and in first grade, and you know, has spent one third of his life in a pandemic, so yeah, he still has mm. some stuff to work out about going back to school, and he... Um, you're he, he you know he comes from me so he tends to remember the hard things in life a little easier than the mm -hmm. good things and uh, by monday afternoon when he comes home from school he's just beaming right because he got to play with his friends and he got Aww. to do all this stuff so we just keep a sort of a a running commentary on like yeah remember you felt really yeah. worried about going to school today which you do a lot of mondays and then by the end of the day you had a great day so Anyways, mm. the kids feel what we're all feeling, which is, it's hard. It's hard to be a human right now, you know, in our world. That's so profoundly devastating to think of it that way. A third of his life spent. A third um, of his yeah. life. And he told me last week, he was like, Mom, I remember when you first told me about coronavirus. And I was mm. like, there's no way. He, he was four. And he was like. We were at home and I asked if we could still play with our cousins. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think he did. It, so it's so fascinating because I, I guess I keep hoping like, oh, he can't remember all this. But no, this is so formative and shaping him mm -hmm. in ways that, you know, even me as a grown up, I kind of wish like, well, I hope it's not traumatizing. But man, these kids are they're going through a lot. And all your kids were at pretty formative ages for, uh, for mm -hmm. this time, too. It's such a good reminder to uh, remember how much of an imprint that these few years have made on all of us, but especially the, the young ones. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah, so that's how we're coming into this Monday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, but we're here. So that's we're good. We're here and... Uh, we're at the beginning of a new season. So for the academic track participants, our students, they're entering into this public theology course. But for everyone else in our community, we're entering a season of thinking about um, questions related to justice. And this month, we are focusing on the theme of race and justice. And it feels like, I don't know, I don't know what comes to mind for you. We, you know, we, we do this on, we've done this for the past number of years. It just feels like, oh, we're back to another um, round of hard conversations around the topic that just seems intractable. I think it's, you know, sometimes I feel like that, but I, I am continually surprised as someone coming out of, you know, white evangelicalism, right? How much I have to learn 
about all the ways that injustice plays out even when it comes to race so our our church this month is we're back to all online just because of omicron levels and Mm -hmm. one you know positive thing about that is that we can have people come in and and talk to us over zoom and so we had a woman come and talk to us from chicago and she's black and she was just describing she kind of had a lot of poems and this beautiful weaving in of the story of ruth um and she was talking about growing up when the the tv series roots came on Mm. the television and everybody Mm. in her chicago south side you know neighborhood everybody watched it together like Mm. night after night because i think it was like a series of nights right Mm -hmm. and she was like eight or nine or ten and that's how she learned the history of enslavement right in this community you know but it was sort of traumatizing for her right to be like wait what Mm -hmm. like this is and i was just thinking about all these battles going on you know about all these white parents saying you know critical race theory should not be taught in schools we should not let white kids you know feel bad about themselves by looking at the history of you know racial injustice in the united states and i'm like of course so many people have said this but like black children don't have that luxury right of Mm. not learning about the history of chattel slavery in the u.s and so I was like, I've heard that, I've absorbed that, I would like intellectually assent to that idea, but hearing someone tell me their story of being a kid and watching Roots, you know, Mm. in their community, it just was like, you know, hit me like a Mack truck. It's like, I I did not grow up watching Roots, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I did not have to learn the same things. And I don't know. So just for me, I'm like, oh, the learning is never going to be over. And it is so powerful when people share their stories and share their testimonies and are able to um, even like write beautiful poems about it. I don't know. I'm just kind of in awe of all the work that people do to share with us, especially during this month, Black History Month. It's kind of it's kind of incredible. The riches we have available to us, you know, through social media. Mm-hmm. That's a really good reminder, and it it actually does help to lift my spirits and helps me to feel more excited about the work ahead. Because um, as you were just talking, I just realized you know we have two books that we're reading this month or that we're talking about that didn't exist last year this time. <gasps> and so, That's right, cool. Kelly Brown Douglas's book "Resurrection Hope: A Future mm-hmm. Where Black Lives Matter," this came out I think late last year. And then Lisa Sharon Harper's book, new book, which is coming out, I think it, it officially drops tomorrow. Um, it's such a moving book. The full title of the book is Fortune, How Race uh, Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. So yeah, we have good materials to work with uh, to help us that weren't around even a year ago. That is, I mean, I love that. I love that we're using two books that are brand new while also you know utilizing words from truth tellers that have been around for a really long time as well so i think that's such a cool balance to have both of those yeah yeah and just to be clear our expectation isn't that people are reading all of these books this month if you do that's great i know that for other folks you know um just even reading a few pages can be enriching and so there's a variety of ways that that folks um, can engage. But another book that we wanted to talk about today 
um, and it's been a part of our curriculum for um, quite a number of years now, is Willie Jennings' book, The Christian Imagination. Um, so this is a book that both of us have read, perhaps multiple times. I, I just want to hear you uh, reflect on your encounters uh, with that particular text. Okay, so you assigned this book when I was in the program. Otherwise, I don't know if I could have made it through because it's such an mm -hmm. academic yet poetic mm -hmm. behemoth. So mm -hmm. I, I was like, this this person writes beautifully, but also mm -hmm. he is operating at another level <laughs> mm -hmm. of like cultural and theological oh, analysis yes. that I was playing catch up. So that's mostly what I want to say is that mm -hmm. I believe I got about 10% of what Willie Jennings was saying in his book. And that 10% mm -hmm. was incredible, but it was devastating. And yeah. truly the heart of it was just the horrifying marriage of Christianity with white supremacy, right? And mm -hmm. saying, this is how yes. God ordained the world. Oh, like that is just a lot. And even like, mm -hmm. What's the chapter? Zarathura's Tears. How do you say that name? Uh, Zarara's Tears. There you go. Zarara's Tears. Yeah, and, just, one. Mm -hmm. and just framing it even in this, like, you can be a good white person. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can cr cry tears. Mm -hmm. and you Genuine can tears. And a genuine. And you can still say, but in the end of the day, this is how God ordained it therefore we must accept this inequality this injustice this enslavement of other people the expansion of christianity the expansion of trade routes you know it's all together and yeah. whoo that was you yeah. know yeah a big a big moment to just sit with yeah that. the tears are an important part of the origin story of race especially race understood in a theological frame uh, and I think that's a real challenge for us because I think it's easy for us to think of race as a, uh, a social or political category, uh, even an economic uh, phenomenon, right? Oh, it's because of economics that people made something up called that we understand to be uh, these racial hierarchies that we operate with. But Jennings does a fantastic job saying the theological origins of race are what we really need to grapple with to understand the problem of race in our time. So yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging book, and it it's one that really turns our at least my the turned my theological world upside down because it helped me to see all the ways in which so many of the things that I just took for granted were racialized. Um, and when I began to see them that way, and see all the ways in which um, it really uh, was constructed to serve a white supremacist agenda. Um, that's really problematic, and you can't unsee that. So it's a devastating book in many ways. It's hard yeah. and devastating. You know, I would love to have somebody, you know, not myself. I mean, Willie Jennings would be amazing. But to have, like, an additional chapter to the Christian imagination, you know, after the January 6th insurrection. Because for me, mm. that event just continues to stand out for just the utter boldness of saying, uh, mm -hmm. we are the ones supposed to be in charge here and we will take it by force and we will bring the Christian yes. flag with us, you know, into the halls of power. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I just have been like, I'd love to see <laughs> just somebody write about that as like, mm. yeah, this is, this should not be surprising that this happened. And, um, I don't know. Yes, do you want to write that chapter? Do you want to write that well, <laughs> I don't know about writing the chapter, <laughs> but I do think it is such a helpful confirmation. These are world events happening in real time in our lifetime that are confirming, um, these theological arguments that can seem a little abstract at times, but then you see it playing out on the news and all yes. around us. And that's why I and love it, Willie Jennings, but I do know that he is a little a abstract or even just, like I said, operating at a, another level than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, I do think fundamentally I'm talking about my people, white evangelicals. They still just don't see any problem deep down yeah. with the idea that they think, you know, they are at the pinnacle of God's revelation to humanity, you know, mm -hmm. throughout all of time and yes. should be in charge. That is just a baseline belief that my yeah. community believes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even start to understand that that's not how everybody views the world, right? Until much later in my life. And that's something I think you are passionate about talking about in the faith and justice program is kind of getting to that root idea. Cause of mm -hmm. course we want to talk about race and justice and there's so many amazing conversations going on, but honestly I don't see tons of people having this conversation about what, what do we call it? The supersessionism of, mm -hmm. of white evangelicalism. Would you be able to just talk about that a little bit? I know I've asked you about that before, but I'm yeah. like, we just got to keep talking about it because it's not out there. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. Well, supersessionism, as Jennings explains it, I mean, he, he talks about it as sort of the most devastating theological kind of sickness um, in our time uh, for the past few centuries, really. And it's the idea that it, the latest and the greatest is what is um, what is best. And so, I mean, we operate in supersessionist categories all the time. It's always the latest, the newest technology that's the best because it has superseded what came before. Um, but it's really problematic when you think of theology in that way, and especially when you think of Western Christianity in that way as the fullest expression of God's gospel truth in the world. And then supersessionist does this weird thing where it's the latest and greatest, and anything that comes after it is a deviation. Right. And so things that go. come after it, right, you still have the supersessionist mentality of, oh, these are just bugs and these are these are deviations and these are sometimes called heresies. Um, but we want to preserve uh, the pinnacle of um, Christian theology, which somehow we have captured and articulated um, in our tradition. And that's really problematic. And so I think because Jennings is right. Even after Jennings and the Christian imagination, there are so many attempts, and sometimes it's progressives who fall into this trap of trying to resuscitate or renew a, a version of um, a theological tradition that they think can be salvaged without doing the hard work of truly excavating and dismantling um, what was there. Oh, it's so true. And this is not like progressive, but you know, to make, to kind of bring this into where we're at today, uh, you know, David Brooks wrote a piece for the New York Times this past week talking about the dissenters trying to save evangelicalism. And I emailed you the link to the story because I wanted to hear yes, your you thoughts. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is a New York Times 
something's wrong with evangelicalism. How do we save it? You know, kind of piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. we've we've read a, a few of these pieces before, Peter. But I was I was wondering if you could kind of talk about how you read that piece. You know, um, in light of the supersessionism that was seeping through the the cracks in that one (laughs) oh yeah well you know part of the story now is that this really has become a genre uh, that this style of writing about oh you know we lost our way there there was once a time when christians uh, were able to resist um, these harmful toxic forces in the culture in the cultural stream things like racism and um, Trumpism, like this didn't used to be us. And now somehow we got poisoned with this stuff. And if we can just go back, rewind a couple of years or decades or centuries, we'll get back to a more pristine form of Christian expression. Uh, well, that's problematic because no matter how far you go back, especially, especially in the North American context, in, in the Western context, no matter how far you go back, even if you go back to the very roots uh, there are problematic elements there. And so this form of nostalgia, I think, is really, um, is really problematic and hard because it, it um, perpetuates this mythology that um, there's a particular form of Christianity that if we can just some, somehow recover, preserve, protect, then we're going to be in a much better place. But that's, that's what got us here in the first place. Oh, yeah. And I I think that it's just so discouraging to be like, we're not actually talking about what's wrong here. Uh, You know, for David Brooks and the way he frames it. Yeah, it's just like if we can get a few more people to dissent. Yeah, we could we could fix it all. You know, and even coming up with some of these ideas like let's invest in great minds. Let's get, you know, evangelicals into colleges and all. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you guys. (laughs) And I do Mm -hmm. agree. Just blaming it all on Trump. It's like, I thought we were past that, you know, Trump Mm -hmm. revealed things. He didn't create them. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, it was kind of a sobering read to think like, this is how many people are viewing the future. But you and I, you know, and the Faith and Justice Network, you know, I think we really would like to see a different lens, right? Where if we're going to pursue a life of faith and justice, um, you know, who are going to be the voices we listen to? Who do we like, Peter, who do you think is a dissenting voice of like American religion right Uh, now? Yeah. I think you're signing these books to us. That's what I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, this is where it gets really tricky because there can be this kind of circular pitfall that we fall into where um, it's it's almost it becomes like when we begin to engage in these conversations at the very same level of trying to understand who has the better argument. um, I think at least for me, I'll speak for myself once again, because I always have to remind myself to do this because I've been trained or steeped in this thinking that somehow it's possible to achieve the omniscient point of view, mm. um, which isn't mm. the case at all. Mm-hmm. Like my my point of view is always going to be my personal, individual, very limited point of view, um, and 
part of coming to recognize that is no matter how many books I have read and no matter how many smart people, wise people I've spoken with, um, my point of view is still going to be encased or entrapped. Um, and so it always has to be me in relationship with other people, right? Me in conversation with you uh, in, on this particular morning. Um, us in conversation in relationship with learning from other communities and never at any point saying we are now the community that has right a much better way. Um, and I think that's tricky because it's hard not to reify that into some kind of, you know, to, to bottle it into some kind of formula that can transcend um, our time. And so I think there are voices in every book that we read. None of the books that we read is above reproach or criticism, but we do, I think, um, we are finding and hearing from voices that are uh, unusually perceptive. Um, and so, yeah, Kelly Brown Douglas and Lisa Sharon Harper happen to be two voices like that. And there are many others, right? And so this is the danger of trying to name all the all the voices and people is that you're always going to leave some out. Oh, yeah. that um, I mean, the question I asked you terrifies <laughs> me because I'm like, no, I will, I will I'm going to leave someone out. out. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but you got to start somewhere too. And so uh, these are the places where we're starting, um, but there's so many more. Uh, so one, one example of this is maybe real quick is Robert Warrior, who provides a different perspective from a native or indigenous perspective that is very different from the traditions of uh, the black church and black theology. And I would say like, it's important to hear from uh, a multiplicity of perspectives. And so what Robert Warrior does with the Exodus story from the vantage point of someone whose people have experienced conquest is going to be very different and challenging uh, for us. And so, yes, um, and even the, even the black church, uh, black theology is, uh, is multitudinous and it's not one thing, it's impossible to encapsulate it in one singular um, fashion. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I still struggle with this so much is just this desire to get it all right. I've gotten it wrong in the past. I would like to have it on lockdown, <laughs> the right yes. way to be a person in the world and the right way to be a Christian, you know, in our very messy world right now. And it is pretty discouraging to me to be like, I don't think that's a healthy way to be. I think it, yeah. I think, I think that stems from more white supremacist thinking. And, and so I'm so glad you called that out. And, you know, taking the faith and justice fellowship for me was such a great way to engage with books and sources in their totality and to be in conversation with people about them. And I don't think you ever explicitly told us this, but I think you're exactly right. We were never like these books are above reproach, but we treated them more as conversations where we can glean understanding instead of like this book will give us all the right answers. And it's just such a better way of reading, of being in conversation with people. And, and obviously, you know, I want to be a lifelong learner. So it's, so, it's such a good mm -hmm. reminder, like the books yeah. you choose and the ways we approach them, they can really help people like myself who just 
want to be good, want to be right. And instead, like we're going to be in long term conversation with diverse communities. You know, I hope I hope that for my kids. I hope that for me, you know. Well, you're you're an author of several books. And I, I bet as you look back on your books, you can see a journey. Um, oh, and you yes. have a new one oh, coming my out. Gosh, we'll so have to talk more about, you know, <laughs> we'll have to talk more about about this new one coming out down the line. But there is the trajectory. And I think that's what gives us hope is that um, there's always more to learn. And whatever particular present moment we find ourselves in, I think we have to disabuse ourselves of the idea or notion because that's the height of supersessionist thinking, right? Like this mm. present moment is the fullest expression of who I am. Well, in some ways it is, but it's not the final expression. It's not the most truthful expression um, of who who we are. And so, yeah, I think there's this maybe danger of always kind of living um, this life of wonderlust. But at the same time, the hope is we're always moving. Yeah, and I still think there's some great, you know, best practices to have, right? Just even like be aware of your blind spots, try and seek those out, um, you know, continue to learn how to pay attention to your intuition. Like, are you a, in a season where you can absorb a lot of new information? Are you not? Like, I think all that is great. But even like the books that you've chosen for fe- February, right? Centering black women in particular. It's like that David Brooks piece where he talks about 12 dissenters like Mm. he doesn't talk about a single woman of color you know and that was pointed out that was pointed out to me by a black man and it's like yeah that (laughs) i don't want to be a supersessionist but i still want to be like Mm -hmm. i think you've missed the point buddy if Mm -hmm. uh you know this is what you're putting out there and you don't find the need to even talk to a single woman of color so there's some best practices there that we could probably look into well and that piece, I mean, some people are going to have to go back and read that piece, but like that piece has some good dissenting voices. And then I'll, many of the dissenting voices that he quotes, they're not dissenters at all. They're very much part of the establishment. Um, so that was such a perplexing yeah. title to that piece to say these are the dissenters who are going to renew evangelicalism. It's um, interesting. So I'm not sure I want to be a dissenter, but I am, you know, I... I just wrote a book on Dorothy Day and her co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Peter Morin, was this beautifully odd man named Peter Morin. Mm. And he, like, if he was like hospitalized for something and was asked for his occupation, he would write down agitator. And I just love that. It's just like somebody who just makes it a little, stirs things up, mm-hmm. you know, like that's a kind mm-hmm. of, I, I like that idea. So I, I think about that a lot. I, I kind of want to be an agitator. Um, I don't know. It's just something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at the, at underneath that is this, I think, acknowledgement or awareness that, you know, we're not quite there yet, that we're still yeah. people on the way, yeah. which is a helpful reminder. Yeah. You know, we, we want that kind of humility. And humility is a weird thing to talk about and to aim for because the moment you think that you have humility, you've actually lost it, right? So it's this elusive thing. But there's a point where Kelly Brown Douglas talks about epistemological, what does she call it? Is it hubris? No. Um, Shoot, I gotta find it real quick here, okay? Um, But it's worth, oh, epistemological privilege is what she calls it on page 67 of the book. And this was such a mind-blowing section for me because, let me just read a few lines here. That's on page 77. She's talking about 
Confederate monuments and the ways in which they, they shape the social imaginary. And she says, what cannot be emphasized enough is that these monuments in forging a social memory that reinforces the nation's story and, and identity do so in a way that mystifies, if not negates the fact of white supremacy. They allow the American story to be understood in a way that covers up the intentional fostering of systemic, structural, and ideological white racism. Mm. And that just blew my mind because I think what she's saying there is whiteness operates with a kind of code switching facility. You know, oftentimes I think it's people of color. I do this code switching depending on the environment in which I find myself. Uh, but of course, what we also know is that there is a kind of um, speaking in code and operating in code that white supremacy enacts. And I think she's pointing that out. And to the extent that we can erase it or make it unseen, negate it, uh, mystify it, the, the more it's able to run rampant. Oh, that's so good. And I mean, we could even make this very practical, right? To anybody listening, and, and especially if you're going to be reading and engaging with the Kelly Brown Douglas book, like, go find a local monument, <laughs> you know, and spend some time in front of it. Spend some time, like, researching the complexity of it. Like, I, I know people on the West Coast like to pretend, uh, you know, there's no racism here, right? Peter. <laughs> but uh, when I go to the Oregon coast, uh, you know, there's there's a town we go to often and there's just statues of like Lewis and Clark, like looking at the ocean. Uh, one one of them was with like their dog at their feet. And it's such an erasure of um, the people who help them on their journey right mm -hmm. and and specifically uh you know they had an enslaved person named york who was also on the expedition and helped kept them mm -hmm. alive and somebody an anonymous person made a bust of york put it up in a park in portland and it was such a big deal and it, it was destroyed not too long ago um mm -hmm. by angry white people so it's just like hmm. all of this stuff is like happening right now as we are trying to think of ways to even engage with the complexity of who we emulate and who we don't and you know I am a white person so I, I, you know I don't have to engage in code switching and so a part <laughs> for me the the phrase that comes to mind it's like it's time to be a race trader you know is what white folks are being called to do when it comes to these things like statues and stuff it's time to break those social norms say things about it leave signs um at these monuments like you could make your own sign and be like hey this statue erases the history of york um you know it erases this history i'm very much into doing things like that i know not everybody is but i love it there's a lot of, a lot of people are started leaving signs like that in downtown portland and i just i think it's so great Sorry if that was a tangent, Peter. <laughs> no, no, this is not a tangent because it, it's all around us. I mean, I think that's your point is that we think that we have come to a place like geographically, physically. I, I remember thinking because uh, when I was in the Midwest, I missed the West Coast. I missed California. Uh, I would always joke about it to my friends. As, that's the promised land. I want to go back to the promised land. Um, and then moving back here after many years of uh, sojourning in the Midwest, I realized, oh, it's not that different. And actually, 
it it's a little harder to sometimes interrupt these narratives because the good liberal Pacific Northwesterner pressure is strong, you know? Mm, um, so it's yeah. just, it's fascinating. So going back to the Brooks article, I, I wonder if, so Kelly Brown t- Douglas talks about the lost cause narrative and the ways in which the way that we tell our stories about the civil war, that the whitewashing of that from a war over slavery to it's about states' rights, right? And sort of the ways in which that transformation occurred. I, I went to a high school in Southern California, and I was taught the lost cause narrative by one of my favorite history teachers. Um, I wonder if pieces like the one by David Brooks in the New York Times, where there is this narrative of if we can just renew evangelicalism and get it back to its right foundations, that that perpetuates a kind of lost cause narrative around um, versions of Christianity that we want to insist have some kind of healthy core redeeming and rediscovering. Wow, Peter, I think you've nailed it because it's been hard for me to articulate like why it's so gut level depressing to read pieces like his. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because they're trying to rewrite it all, you know, to be the good ones all throughout. And I'm just not mm. interested in that anymore. I'm interested in a Christianity where like confession, lament and repentance is, is just going to be a part of the way forward. And I read this book uh, for review and I just wanted to share a little story that really stood out to me. Um, he's a younger guy named Damon Garcia and he wrote a book called The God Who Riots. It's not coming out to August, mm. but just the way he engaged scriptures from sort of like a younger leftist perspective is, is so incredible. And he was talking about the story of Peter getting this vision, right, about you can eat the unclean animals and basically reframed it as a story of Peter arguing with God, like trying to mm. tell God, like, no, this is what you told us to do. I'm just doing what you said. And God is literally in a conversation with Peter trying to be like, I'm telling you something new. Like, are you ready to listen? And Peter's like, but no, I will argue back with you and tell you what you told us before. It was such a fascinating reframing. Like, I just see a lot of white evangelicals just arguing with God. We're just arguing and arguing and arguing with God. And God is (laughs) trying to say Mm -hmm. there's something new. Like, yeah. There's something new happening right now. I would love for you to be a part of it. You know, that's the most gracious way I can feel right now is God would Mm -hmm. dearly love my people, my community to be a part of seeing, you know, flourishing come right now. And instead, I just see my people arguing these tired old arguments back to God Mm themselves. I don't know. It was just a really, it just really stood out to me. Like the scriptures have this already in them, right? (laughs) This is what we try to do. Yeah, that's both beautiful and exasperating, I right? <laughs> it's it's beautiful because it's this it's this relationship where you can talk back to God, yeah. and it's also exasperating because it's so that response is so familiar. It's so ingrained in us of kind of the knee jerk reaction to go back and say, "What this is what I know. This is what I have heard. This is what I have mm-hmm. believed all my life, and therefore I cannot and will not change." That's so yeah. familiar. Yeah. yeah. 
And we still have that, right? It's very much in our bones. We still operate in that way. I mean, you and I were just talking about this, the ways in which we, our gut reaction so often is um, in that old way. Um, does it ever become the old way? Do we ever embrace something new? I don't know. Well, I know I've changed some things about the way I see the world and I have needed a ton of help. And I just am really grateful, you know, to the people, to the books, to, yeah, just a, a great cloud of witnesses, you know, really has impacted me and changed me. Mm. And so I guess, you know, ending this, this podcast today about Black History Month, I am just so grateful. And if there's going to be any hope, you know, <laughs> for a future where I can continue to be a Christian and, um, you know, even have it be something I want my kids to be interested in. It's like, it's just going to be because of these great, these great witnesses, you know, mm-hmm. that show mm-hmm. me a God who is saying, I'm doing something new, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I'm just kind of, I'm happy I'm ending this on a, a grateful note instead of the world mm-hmm. is going to end note, which is kind of where my white supremacist thinking takes me is that it's all a mess and it's never gonna it's never gonna be perfect so why bother you know trying and instead mm-hmm. yeah oh, i'm just grateful to be in community with people who are trying to figure it out yeah i really like that and i find that really helpful i think what you're inviting us to is hey like read these authors and listen to their voices and think something new that's not according to your old patterns of thinking uh, and I think we all need more of that. We all need to have our minds and our hearts open to something new. Um, yeah, that's a, good that's, word. Uh, that's a word good of word hope. Today. Maybe mm-hmm. David Brooks will listen to this podcast and he'll write well, another article. Someone, someone should forward it to him. <laughs> someone should say, oh. hey, listen to this. <laughs> So in terms of like other voices to listen to, we did talk about a, uh, a lecture by Christina Cleveland. Was it last month? Um, mm-hmm. And then just recently, just this morning, we posted the Christina Cleveland sermon that she gave that same afternoon. I think it was the same afternoon oh, after the lecture. It? Okay, okay. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And so, I mean, that's part of the context that I think is helpful as you listen to that sermon is to think about um, here she is after being confronted in this really antagonistic and unfair and demeaning way and an hour or two later she has to give the sermon in this beautiful cambridge university chapel and she brought a word of um i think challenge Mm. to all of us in that place yeah i'd highly recommend you know if you're part of the faith and justice network to listen to that sermon it it i was in the audience it it greatly impacted me i think about it all the time so i'm so glad that we can listen to it that it's available now Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think she gives some really positive examples or challenging examples of how we can respond to life's hard hardest challenges when we find ourselves at the end of our at our wit's end Uh, how can we respond well we look to the model of jesus in mark chapter 5 i believe is in that story um, and so, yeah, a good, a good word, a challenging word, um, and an invitation to, to follow Jesus, even as we work for justice. Oh, I'm just remembering. I'm just remembering it as you were talking about it. And I have a pretty terrible memory. And mm. I can remember what she said. And just, oh, she was preaching a sermon to multiple audiences at the same time. 
so skillfully. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just, That's a really good way to put it. it. That's a everybody really good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because she weaves in the story of Jairus um, and the story of this woman. There's a sermon for white people in there. And then there's a sermon mm-hmm. for, I, I would say, she was speaking to black women. Yeah. You know, uh, she um, says that. Yeah, I, I just yeah. listened to it last night. Does she? Oh, okay, she okay. says she says I, I want to focus on the story of the black woman in this chapter. Mm, she okay. says that. Yeah. yeah. So good memory. That's a couple years ago. That's really good. Wow. Well, this is going to will be a great listen for this month and, and any month. It's been really good talking to you, Danielle, I think. You know, our voices are limited. And as people listen, um, they're not going to hear everything that they want to hear or think they should hear. And that's as it should be. I think both of us had some sense of fear and trepidation about a conversation like this um, in this particular month. Um, But I just want to say I'm really grateful for these conversations, for your perspective and the ways in which we all are on a journey together, learning from each other along the way. So thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Peter. 